Well, it is good to be back after our adventures in, in France. When you look at a car, you see how everything works together. Or perhaps you don't see it. it you think it just happens. As you press the accelerator pedal, you move forward, providing you've taken the handbrake off. And you've got the clutch in the right point, and you're in gear, and you get to the biting point. The wheels start moving, and they respond to the turn of the steering wheel. You get a buzzer sounding if you've not fastened your seatbelt. You have some cars have their sat-navs and a screen that tells you exactly where you are in the world. Even when you're on a ferry in the middle of, uh, in the, middle of the sea, it flashes up as complete blue. Some cars read the road signs and tell you where you are and what speed you should be doing, and uh, etc. Some cars even can drive themselves. Indeed, my car, if I put autopilot, not autopilot, pro-pilot on, it will keep me within the lanes as well. And if you take your hands off the wheel, it shouts at you. It's scary where they've come. But uh, to get a car to work, everything has to work together in perfect harmony. If the tire pressure drops, the fuel efficiency drops. If the driver falls asleep, the car crashes. If the steering wheel doesn't work, you can't steer. If the brake pads fail, you can't brake. You get the picture. What has that got to do with Philippians 2, friends? Well, in these first few verses of Philippians 2, Paul is urging the little church in Philippi to do that. Not to be a car, but to, for everyone to work together in harmony so that they know that each person is doing what they are called to do so that the church works well. That's what he's urging in those first few verses. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, we can be a church that works united and a church that works in harmony. That message is just as relevant to the church today as it was to the early church in Philippi. In Philippi, no one worked for their own glory at the expense of another. It only worked because everyone in the church was united and had a common purpose. That's how the church should be in the 21st century. That's how the church should have been throughout the ages. But in many ways, as we read those first few verses or hear them as Steve read them to us, when we look at the state of the church today, it's laughable. We think, how can we do that? How can we achieve that? How can we attain that? Because we know only too well since the early church there have been disputes within the church. There is an old Jewish joke that says, if you've got two rabbis together, you likely have at least three opinions. The church can seem like that too. Big theological differences. Resentments from historical events long ago. Variation in worship styles. Personality cults. Clashes of leadership style. We could go on and on and on. So how can we even begin to think of a church like the one Paul is portraying at the start of Philippians? Can you imagine a church where we all thought the same, where we all loved each other completely, we regarded everyone else and their opinions as superior to us and to our own? Can you imagine a church like that. However, it's a bit of doom and gloom, isn't it? If we strip away all of those differences that I talked about, 
the theological differences, the styles of worship, the personality cult, etc. That's what the church does. That's what the church is. It is a place where we come, where we don't focus on ourselves. We focus on someone else. We don't focus on each other as the primary thing. We focus on somebody else. We don't focus on me as the vicar, thank goodness. We focus on someone else. We focus on Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, the King, the Savior, the Messiah, the risen one, whom we come to worship together as we gather in this. But we have a common purpose, to worship and to serve Jesus Christ, the Lord. There is a reason why our first value is Christ-centered in this church. Because we have to keep our attention on Jesus first and foremost by reading, studying, and contemplating on Scripture. We have to be a church that bucks the trend because too many churches don't know their Bibles well enough. Too many people in the pews, they don't know their Bibles They come to be fed on a Sunday and then go out and forget about it for the rest of the week. And then they come back the following Sunday and listen to that little snippet of Scripture that we get in a church service. And that is the only Bible they hear each week, the few verses we read in church. To be Christ-centered, we have to focus on the Word of God. We have to spend time with it daily. I encourage people on Wednesday, and I'm sure this was encouraged last week, if you, we are looking at Philippians, if you haven't done so, go home and read Philippians from start to finish in one go. I'm not going to say do it this afternoon, but over, as we explore this, this letter from Paul, read the letter from start to finish in one go, because then you pick up the rhythm of the letter and what Paul is getting at, rather than it just being, well, we've had this little snippet today, we've had that little snippet last week. Read it in one go because it flows through as a letter should flow. But without Jesus being at the center of it all, why would we come to church? There simply isn't a need to come to church without Jesus Christ. Or do we come just because we want to feel good and it's the right thing to do? So when we come to church, friends, do we have the right mindset? Do we come with an attitude of love, and humility towards one another? Or are we sat there thinking, well, I could have done that bit a bit better, or, well, that was a bit long, or I didn't like that song, I didn't like this, the temperature's too warm, the temperature's too cold, I don't like the fans on, I don't like the doors open, the coffee's awful. Do we come with the right mindset, with love and humility to one another? Because all of those things that I've just listed, if we're coming thinking all those other things, they are there to serve as a distraction to our worship of Jesus Christ and our common purpose together. What about if we think outside of the church for just a moment, though? Those distractions multiply even more. Because when we're outside, perhaps when we were at home, we might have the TV on. We might have the radio on. We might be reading a book. All of those things, in many ways, serve as a distraction If I was to say, how often do you spend with God in a day? And then I was to ask you the question, how often do you spend watching the TV? Or insert your hobby leisure activity of choice. Is the balance right? Mine isn't. I know mine isn't right at all. We need to address that balance. And then we can start to have that mindset of love 
and humility and sharing that common purpose within the church. Otherwise, Jesus is left out of the church and of our lives, and that's a dangerous place to be. So what's the motivation towards unity? Well, it's in verse 1. We should want to live this way because, as we all should know, comfort comes from being in the king's family. Or as Paul says, being united with Christ. From belonging to the family of Christ, there is a growing sense of love in the family, a love that sustains and cheers you from day to day. Dean's already spoken this morning about his, the church family and what it meant to him and kept him in Luton. That's what a church family should be. That's why another of our values is love one another. Because that's what it's all about. And this isn't a sermon on our values, by the way. It's just it seemed to fit in nicely with Philippians 2. Love one another in humility. Listen to each other. We're very good at listening to somebody going, well, that's a pile of rubbish. Perhaps we don't say that out loud. Or, well, I don't agree with that, and we're going to go and do this. But let's actually listen to each other. Hear what the other person is saying. And consider, consider it. Because that call of love one another is repeated regularly throughout Scripture. And when we love one another, it means that there will be unity. When we love Jesus Christ first and then we love each other, there is unity in the church because we have that common purpose of coming to worship and serve Jesus Christ. You might be sat there thinking though, but I've not got anything in common with the person I'm sat next to. Hopefully that's not the case if you're sat next to your partner or, or spouse. But you might be thinking, but I have nothing in common with you. Well, I'm here, I want to tell you, if you read Scripture, you've got a lot in common with the person sat next to you. We're all temples of the Holy Spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And the Holy Spirit is what unites us and binds us together as a family, as Christians, as, as disciples of Jesus Christ. When we allow the Holy Spirit to direct us and strengthen us, we can't help but move forward in one direction. Because we have that common purpose, and it's the Holy Spirit that is guiding us into that, that path. When the PCC were looking at the vision last year, we all came to the same conclusion that this is what the Lord was asking of us for this, that particular season. Maybe that season's now moved on and we need to review it. I don't know. We're going to talk about PCC tomorrow. As I work with candidates for ordination, the process is geared up so that they see lots of different people and every single person has to agree, yes, we think they have a call-in. Then they get to go to selection conference. Within the life of a church, everybody, it all seems to be, whether locally or nationally, that it requires a sense of everyone being involved and nine times out of ten, people are all on the same page because we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us for that common purpose. That's how unity works in a church. In many ways, it's beyond us, because it's the Holy Spirit that does the work. But when we allow the Spirit to take over, and this is what Paul is getting at, it then produces the natural human emotions of affection and sympathy. So when we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us, that then allows us to feel affection and sympathy for the person next to us. For the person who perhaps we wouldn't normally engage with. For the person who comes into church, you think, well, what are you doing here? You don't fit the mold of a Christian. 
We look beyond the image. We look beyond what we see, as God does, because God looks to the heart. And that's what we do when we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us. If, when we consider what I've just said, and it doesn't, it doesn't sit well with us, and we don't want to work and live in unity, then something has gone seriously wrong somewhere. There needs to be a motivation towards unity. And there's also the aspect of the inner life of unity. Now again, that sounds completely unattainable at the outset. That we're going to be a united church, all move forward together, all love one another. There's never going to be any disputes. We're just going to all follow what the Holy Spirit does and everything will be perfect. It's unattainable. What Paul is calling the church to do is to bring the thinking into, into line with each other. So bring our thinking together, our discernment of what the Holy Spirit is asking together so that we can find that single purpose and where God is guiding us. It isn't about person A changing their mind to agree with person B, just as person B changes their mind to agree with person C, who is struggling with what person A originally said, if you follow that. It's not about, it's, it's confusing, it's supposed to be confusing. It's not about all, us all being molds of each other. Unity as well cannot be the final aim of the church because many others can be united. Thieves, adulterers, those who commit genocide, armies, prisoners, they all have a unity. What makes us any different if we're united in the church? Well, what matters for us as Christians is that we maintain our focus on what Jesus has done for us. We maintain our focus on how Jesus died and rose again to beat the wages of death and sin and how we are his hands and his feet in the world today and where we fit in the, in the grand narrative of God's ultimate plan to bring humanity back to himself. That's the end goal. To keep our focus on Jesus Christ. The church thinking has to be in line with the gospel. The Christian thinking, our thinking, has to be in line with the gospel. When we move from the gospel, that's when the disputes start to happen. That's why I think Paul has that plea in verses 3 and 4. We should not look not only to our own interest, but to the interest of others. That's the very heart of the gospel itself. Jesus himself says, I have come to serve and not to be served. That is the mindset that we need in the church. That we come to serve one another. We don't come to be served. I don't arrive at half past nine to make sure that Wendy puts that coffee in my hand, despite what I might have said this morning. I didn't. You know, you don't come to church to make to get be served. We come to church to serve one another. All the things that happen in the church during the week that most of us probably don't see, it's all part as an attitude of service to one another. It's like if I was to say to you now that the most interesting person in this room is the person that you're sat next to. Apologies if that's a spouse. <laughs> the most interesting person in this room is the person you're sat next to. That means that every single person in this room is interesting. So as we gather here this morning, if we think about it like that, I think we're starting to get somewhere close to what Paul is thinking about. 
We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And that's what Paul shows us next. After those first four verses about calling for unity, we move on to that beautiful, beautiful passage of Philippians 2, 5 to 11. The church has got that unity wrong so often and will continue to, I'm sure. So how can we start thinking about getting it right in the future? We look to verses 5 to 11. They are some of the most wonderful words that Paul penned. If indeed Paul wrote them, he may well be using an earlier Christian poem. And he may be using that as a, and and sort of reiterating it. But when we think about those words and we look at the culture that Paul was writing in, we see just how deeply subversive and countercultural they truly are. He says, "In, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's verses 5 to 8. In Paul's time, the emperor Augustus had put an end to the long-running Roman civil war and had brought peace to the whole known world. Many subjects of his started seeing him as divine. He was a leader. Other rulers did their best to copy that model because that's what heroic leadership looked like in Paul's time. Then we read Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And we see what true heroic leadership looks like. It's a life of service. It's a life of humility. It's going to the cross for me and for you. That's what true leadership looks like. As Jesus tells us in Mark 10, world rulers lord it over their subjects, but it mustn't be like that with you. With you, the ruler must be the slave because the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom to many. Those few verses, 5 to 11, that Paul uses goes to the very heart of the whole letter. It gives the deep groundwork for the challenge to self-sacrifice and unity within the church. As I say, it may be that Paul didn't write them. He's quoting an even earlier Christian writer. But what we do know is that those few verses are one of the earliest statements of faith, statements of Christian faith in who Jesus was and what he accomplished. I read to verse 8 earlier because on verse 9, it, the poem itself turns with the word, therefore. Why should Jesus, who did what we've looked at in verses 5 to 8, be honored in this way? Well, the answer is what we celebrate at Easter. Jesus accomplished on the cross what only God can do. Here we see the very heart of the Christian vision of God and how intimately the Father and the Son are. Now, Paul is very clear that he's not moving away from a monotheistic view of God, and I'm not going to go into a deep theological discussion now. But have we allowed, friends, Western society to creep into our attitudes and views of what a deity or divinity looks like? In Paul's time they had, they thought Augustus was divine. Who do we think is divine in the 21st century? Do we have idols? Do we look on TV and think, well, I want to be like them. They've got it all sorted. I think we need to radically rethink our view of divinity. And to do that, we need to start by looking at Jesus himself and rediscovering who he is as the person of Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Savior. 
It's a challenge. But what we see here is that God is known most clearly when he abandons his rights for the sake of the world. God is seen most clearly when he sends his son to the cross to die for us because he abandons himself for the sake of the whole world. If we start to live with that mindset, the idea of unity in those first four verses suddenly makes a lot more sense because we're living for Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus Christ who is crucified on the cross. We see that he is part of the Godhead. And we see that the very model of unity comes from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are made in that image. We belong in that relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's perfect unity. Can we model that perfect unity in the church? Very briefly, as we move on to the last set of verses, Paul summarizes what we've explored in those first 11 verses. With summing up, do everything without grumbling. It's titled in the NIV, 12 to 18. He's looking forward once again to the day of the Messiah as long as the church continues to work towards this. In the way he's shown them, the church then stands as a thing of beauty in a muddled, messy, depraved world. That's what was happening in Philippi. That's what's happening in the 21st century. It's what it should be doing. The church should look beautiful in amongst the depravity and wicked generation that we find ourselves living in. At the moment, the church is known for the wrong reasons. Safeguarding scandals, independent boards being sacked, disputes over over same-sex blessings, disputes over interpretation of Scripture, people in church for their own gain, people in the church trying to uphold a building rather than the people and proclaiming the word of Jesus Christ. We're known for the wrong reasons. The world's culture has seeped into the church. But what Paul says in verse 17 is that we can become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which we shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. The church can and is beautiful. It can be united together to proclaim the mighty acts of Jesus Christ. Now, the shining like stars is from Daniel 12, 3, which speaks of the wise, referring to the Israelites at the time who knew and applied God's law despite the persecution. Are we going to be the wise and shine like stars? Are we going to apply God's law to our lives and to the church despite the fact we may face persecution or opposition? Of course, not persecution in the sense of some of our brothers and sisters. If we can be united in Jesus Christ, we can be a church that is united and beautiful and that will speak into the darkness and ugliness of this world. Because the world only knows the way to death, yet we know that we are a sign of God's new life and his new creation. Paul says to do it without complaining or arguing. A reference back probably to Israel in the wilderness when they questioned God and Moses all the time. Paul sees the church as the people of the new exodus, brought out of the Egypt of sin and death through the Passover action of God in Jesus, and now on the way home to the real promised land. The difference is, this time, we're going to get it right. We're going to get there. We're going to get to the real 
promised land when everything will be made right. That is the challenge that Paul is presenting to the church in Philippi, those first hearers of this letter. That same challenge applies to us today. Are we going to take Paul's advice and strive for what he explains? Or are we merely going to think that's a lovely idea, but it's not for me? Amen.